on your FM dial. was Josh Ritter singing Change of Times and this is WCBN FM Ann Arbor and the Living Writer Show. We are here uh, live in the Ann Arbor studio um, on Thursday, August 23rd, 2018 uh, with our guest Luke Schaefer. Hello, Luke. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli. I'm the host this summer um, and today we're going to talk to Luke about his book uh, co-authored with Catherine Eden called $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. Um, for those of you listening who are not familiar with Luke's work yet, I think I'll read a short bio um, so we get to know you, and then we'll have you kind of introduce the book for yeah. us, Luke. Um, Luke Schaefer is an associate professor at the University of Michigan School of Social Work and the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. He is also director of a new University of Michigan-wide initiative um, on poverty solutions, which I'd love to hear more about, by the way. Yeah, that sounds yeah, exciting. I'm happy to talk um, about it. Please tell us more about $2 a day. Yeah, so I'm just going to go way back and start with um, how I got into the work that I do. So I study poverty and public programs and how they work. Things like food stamps, now called SNAP, and, and welfare, and um, earned income tax credit. But uh, I got drawn to this work as uh, uh, growing up, uh, grew up without a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad had a career change, and so we were somewhere around the poverty line for uh, much of the time growing up, maybe down below, you know, in what as academics we would call the working poor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I knew that I didn't have enough money to be middle class or upper, upper middle class, um, but my extended family had money, and so we didn't have to go to the welfare office. We could always um, ask grandma and grandpa for money mm -hmm. if we needed something, so... I knew I wasn't middle class and I certainly wasn't rich, but I didn't really think of myself as poor either. So I sort of wondered if there was a place for me trying to bridge the divide between people uh, in a society that was becoming more and more divided over time. So I did some emergency relief casework early in my career where I was working with families who were facing eviction or having their utilities shut off. And that drew me to systems work, saying, you know, there has to be structural things that we could change that makes the system work better. And from then, mm -hmm. my life took sort of a, 
a change I was never expecting, which was that I became a data nerd. So, <laughs> did you I, expect to become a social worker? I did and work in the world did, that way. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I've I've grown to love data. It makes me warm inside, and I would let, cuddle it up at night if I could. Let this be the first time on the Living Writers Show that we've had <laughs> a writer speak this fondly of data. Go on. And and so much of my work then I think was important work, but. Um, was work I did in my office looking at large-scale data, trying mm-hmm. to understand uh, dynamics at the large scale. So I met up with Kathy Eden, who had written a number of books. She'd be a great person to have on the show, I think. Um, books that were really foundational to our understandings of how single moms married work and welfare in the 1990s and understanding the rise of single parenthood. And this was about 2000. 11, and Kathy told me she was seeing something that she'd never seen before. You know, she'd been doing this work for two decades. She's an ethnographer, so she, mm-hmm. she would do something that was a little uncommon in the academy, academy, which is when she had questions, she would actually go out and talk to people, you know, and talk ask. Talk to humans. Talk yeah. to humans. <laughs> and so she said, you know, I'm seeing something I've never seen before. Families who aren't just poor by American standards, but are, are deeply, deeply poor and poor in a particular way, which was they had lack of access to cash, to money. Mm-hmm. So often they had food stamps, now called SNAP. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they had a housing subsidy, although that's relatively rare, but what they lacked was access to cash. So we had two questions. One, had there really been an increase in families who fit this profile? And two, uh, did it matter if they had SNAP, did they need money? And so mm-hmm. that's how I entered into the project, which was, to try to look at every source of data that we have to see, had there been a change at the very bottom, we decided to use this marker of $2 per person per day. And whatever data set I went to, whether it was surveys or administrative records from the SNAP um, program about the number of people uh, reporting that they had zero money under penalty of law when they applied for benefits, the number of families who fit this profile had either doubled or tripled over the last 15 years. So there was clearly a trend there. And to try to get at the second question of what did it really mean, we decided to go to Kathy's technology of going out and talking to people. So we went to Chicago, over to Cleveland, uh, which like Detroit was a very wealthy city half a century ago and is now Mm -hmm. routinely one of our poorest. Went to uh, Appalachia where a lot of people sort of credit it's the war, the start of the war on poverty, and then down to the Mississippi Delta. And we really thought the proof of the pudding was, could we find more families who fit this profile and really try to ask them to be the experts and have them tell us about their lives and how they got into the circumstances that they did and what they did to survive. And that was, I think, the most uh, profoundly um, experience-altering uh, change that I've had in my career. The, the the experience of actually going out and talking to people and uh, walking a day in their shoes. In this case, you know, we would tra- you know follow them and take them out to lunch or be a part of their of their daily routine. You know, I often learned the questions that I didn't know to ask in the sort of safety of my office. And how. How did that compare um, or differ from your work as a social worker? You spent some years in yeah. in the field that way, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I think in 
There's two ways that it differed. I mean, for me, it was a matter that had probably been 10 years between the time that I was a social worker to the I time see. I was doing this work. But in another important way, I think as a social worker, the relationship is such where somebody is coming to you for yes. help, right? And some of the things you learn through that is, um, you know, the, the uh, we in the academy would call the heterogeneity, right? The that is, you know, you often can't make up these situations that yeah. people are facing. Uh, and I think, you know, you can see so the challenges, you can see sort of the instability that people are going along and have, mm -hmm. a, have a job and then they have a crisis moment. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it's a relationship of social worker, caseworker to client. And mm -hmm. also, you know, I think as a caseworker, it's hard not to get burned out in that work, not to sort of start to see every person coming into your office as a problem. In $2 a day, in this field work of getting to know people like Jennifer Hernandez in Chicago and Ray McCormick in Cleveland, it, we tried very much for it to be a conversation of person to person, right? And mm -hmm. to really sort of flip uh, the power dynamics. And of course you can't do it. There's all sorts of things involved in that, but really asking them to be the, the expert. Uh, I always remember the first day I went and did field work in Chicago, we met up with Jennifer Hernandez uh, and her kiddos, Caitlin and Cole, who are, um, they were like uh, six and seven or five and seven at the time. And uh, I took my daughter, Bridget, with me, uh, mm -hmm. who at the time was three. And we went to a park. And Bridget and Caitlin and Cole were sort of playing on the swings and uh, doing the jungle gym. And Jennifer was talking with Kathy sort of over here. And I was going back and forth between the two. And, of course, Bridget, like, scraped her knee and I was the unprepared dad who didn't have anything to deal with. And I had to, you know, ask someone for a Band-Aid and we're washing out at the sink. But that, you know, it sort of led to this moment where I just thought, these are just kids. Right. And, you know, Caitlin and Cole, they could come home with me. And Bridget would go home with Jennifer. And no one at the park, I think, would know any different. But yet their life trajectories or the courses that their life are going to take were completely different. And one of the things we learned um, in the second or third time that we spent time with Jennifer was that partly they were in Chicago and going through homeless shelter to homeless shelter because they, they had moved down to Texas and moved in. They doubled up with uh, an aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, she was really happy because the, the uncle, he had had a he had had a job. He had a good, stable job. He, she thought he'd be a good influence on her kids. And she walked in on him uh, sexually molesting Caitlin. Oh, no. And, uh, and she, you know, immediately, like, took both kids. They went to a local so social service agency that didn't have any um, shelters for families. But the, the agency, you know, in a... I think a beautiful move basically cleared out one of their offices so the family could have a safe place to, mm -hmm. to stay. But, uh, you know, uh, Jennifer decided to press charges against the uncle and she, her entire family, uh, basically blamed it on her and said, this is not something that you should 
put out in the public. Raise, this is yeah. yeah, this is a family thing. And you know, none of them basically I think only one took her side and so she didn't just sort of have this traumatic experience of her daughter but also this losing of her family. And, and all those resources, those kind of social resources of having some backup yeah, emotionally exactly. and right. any other exactly. way. Exactly. Of course, yeah. it turned out over time that other members of the family started to come forward that, uh-huh. that he had done this to them, too. That's terrible. And, you know, we, we uh, you know, through this book, I learned a lot about adverse childhood experiences and the occurrence mm-hmm. of experiences like that. And they happen far more frequently across, you know, all all people across, you know, no matter income, but mm-hmm. particularly among families who are the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. and you know that's just an important difference. I can't, I can't fully protect my daughter from that, but I have the resources to reduce a lot of that risk. And uh, and you know, advantages like that are hard to account for in a statistical model, but matter a great deal over the course of a person's life. It's a great example of how the data show one thing and how the stories yeah. Yeah. Um, interconnect. I think one of the things that struck me so much about this book is that um, it's you know the title is about money and it is about yeah. money in in some ways, but it's about so much more. Yeah. To me, I mean, it's about health. It's yep. about feminism. It's about the job yeah. market. It's about so yeah. many other things that impact uh, what poverty kind of looks like today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one thing that I uh, didn't know anything about going in uh, was, um, you know, we started to meet families in Chicago and Cleveland. And as we're doing this usually in the summer, because that's usually the time to do like the most sort of deep ethnography. And uh, we started to meet uh, lots of people who had little divots on the inside crease of their elbow. I immediately sort of went to like, oh, that's a probably a drug track line, you know, they're mm-hmm. clean now, but that explains mm-hmm. some of their challenges. Uh, but as we got into a lot of the work of trying to understand uh, survival strategies, we learned that they were sc- scars from selling blood plasma selling so plasma. much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we met Jessica Compton, Jessica and Travis were a married couple in Tennessee who we met. And the only income coming into their household was her uh money that she was getting from selling her blood plasma mm-hmm. twice a week. And that was something that I didn't know anything about. You know, I knew nothing about the plasma market. And it actually turns out the United States accounts for 70% of the world's plasma supply and only 40% of the demand. So we actually export the blood plasma of poor Americans all over mm. the world. And we're the only country where you can sell your plasma uh, twice in a week because other industrialized countries worry that the health risks are too high. Yes. And it turns out this is a hugely profitable industry. If you're looking for a place to put money, plasma is a good place to do it. Um, but, you know, it's clearly an industry that is relies on the you know raw material or the blood of right. mostly poor Americans. It's shocking. I would like to talk to you more after our song break Great. about... Um, about how poverty in the United States compares to other industrialized nations. You, you yeah. reference that, and it sounds like the United States has uh, some special circumstances with yeah, poverty that, forward, yeah. that we should yeah. talk about. Um, let's have a song, um, Till It Happens to You, is uh, next up. And our wonderful engineer today is Frank Uli, who's running the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Choosing that song, Luke. Who was yeah. that singing? Thanks. So that's Corinne Bailey Ray, and uh, that is one of the artists that I I like listening to when I do my work. And uh, that song, you know, I picked only as a riff because it's I think it's really a love song, but it's uh, really a song about how you don't understand something until it happens to you. And mm-hmm. uh, so since this was a a book where um, Sort of my understanding of people's experiences was changed so dramatically. It's it's one of the ones that I put on the list. I want to ask you more about that in a minute too. Your sort of transfer- transformation during the process of this book. Yeah. Um, this is the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We're speaking to Luke Schaefer, who is co-author of Two Dollars a Day: Living on Almost Nothing in America, and we're talking about poverty. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you when you were talking about yourself mm-hmm. growing up. Mm-hmm. And not thinking of yourself as poor. Mm-hmm. Um, did I get that right? Did, did I rephrase that? You, you yeah, said that? yeah. I mean, I th- I thought of myself in sort of this um, this no man's land of not mm-hmm. being either poor or middle class because we had these resources from the extended family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, when when you were saying that before, it reminded me that in our society, I feel like we have, there's a really uh, pejorative connection to the word poor. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, mm-hmm. um, I wonder often about using that word yeah. and how marginalizing yeah. it is and how difficult yeah. it must be, especially for children um, to hear that word and to apply it to themselves, maybe even when um, they are living at that level. Can you speak yeah, to that at yeah. all? Is that I true? Think, well, you make a really good point. And uh, we're starting to see a lot of research um, that backs this up, that uh, when you uh, sort of use language, a lot of research coming out of psychology that suggests when you use language like that, um, it can it shapes people's performance on mm-hmm. like cognitive and sort of, uh, you know, other sorts of tests. And we're even seeing research that uh, the way that you um, frame aid that's being given mm-hmm. matter it, it matters. So if somebody gets assistance and it's sort of framed right as uh, we're giving this to you because you're poor and you don't have enough, um, it's uh, it has different. We think it you know we're starting to think it has different effects than if we say something like this is you know. Uh, this is to support your visions for taking your family to the, you know, to to where you're meeting your goals or stuff like that. Right. So, uh, and I, I really struggle with this. So we have had a lot of great debates about it with um, our group called Poverty Solutions, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Oh, yes. My concern is that a lot of the other words that are used, some of it is a matter of like the audience, right? Mm-hmm. And my concern is when we use other words, like um, one of the framing that's really popular right now is economic mobility. Making, mm-hmm. And that's sort of framed around like making sure there are systems in place that people with a little income can can move up. And 
economic mobility or, you know, a lot of these words, I think, have the also have the unintended effect of obfuscating the fact that a lot of what we really are talking about is disadvantage, is poverty, right? Is yes. like real it's hard um, to say. destitution, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's not just that in the United States we have people who have less than others. It's mm -hmm. that they, you know, they have serious needs and mm -hmm. uh, we have serious challenges. So I really struggle with this language for this very reason. With euphemisms that, for poverty. Yeah, exactly. Of yeah. what the right framing is. Um, uh -huh. We at, the, at U of M, one of our programs that we started is a summer youth jobs program. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of great research coming out that suggests a summer job uh, can have positive impacts on reduced criminal justice engagement a year later for, for kids who are at risk. Another sort of word we use that may or may not. At risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah there's, there's a lot out there. Uh, so lots of positive um, research coming out about the mm -hmm. impact of summer youth jobs. And uh, we thought, hey, at U of M, we have a lot of work to do in the summer. So we started a summer youth jobs program targeting the the lowest income mm -hmm. uh, zip codes in mm -hmm. Washtenaw County, of which we have some ones that are that are very low income. We didn't make it only, you know, only accessible mm -hmm. to folks uh, from low income communities, but that's where we sort of target a lot of our work. In the first year, we've done it two years now, and in the first year, it was framed as a poverty solutions program. And the evaluations came back and they clearly said, we love the program, you know, the connections it made uh, for us, and we hate the name poverty solutions. Mm -hmm. Because I think anybody who's coming to do work, right, doesn't want to be associated with that name. So in the second year... That's... Yeah, so, it's exactly me, what you're It's like at. that connection between working and poverty. Exactly. A lot of us think that if you're working, you can't be poor. Right, which um, empirically is not true. So yeah. when you look at the typical kid who's growing up in poverty, um, well over, I think, 70% of them have someone who works over the course of a year. Yes. And the the bigger challenge is actually the continuity of work and the hours so that we see these, we're, we're seeing that it's a much more dynamic experience than sort of the static concept of kids in poverty where you might have a family where the parent is working for a couple months mm -hmm. and then something happens in their family life or something happens in the unstable uh, job that they have that leads them to lose that job uh, and sort of causes them to dip below the line. Well, so. it's really oversimplifying to think of a parent as working or not working because exactly. the way the job market right. has changed. One of the right. great points that you make in the book is about how um, schedules for shift workers are now yeah. so different. And they're different, I think, than they were when I was doing shift work, like I when agree. I was a high school student 20-some yeah. years ago, right? Yeah. Because now shift workers are expected to be to have that open availability, yeah. which prevents them from other income, right? Yeah. As, as, uh, for the uh, book, I applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, I didn't get a call, by the way, uh, okay. but um, they, you know, I was just watching sort of what they ask. And I think it was at least two times in the application I was asked about my schedule availability. And mm -hmm. I, for one, and maybe I was primed to think this, but I, for one, felt like the more hours and shifts that I said I was unavailable, the less likely I was to get a job. I don't remember being asked a lot about my skills and the things that I mm -hmm. sort of brought to the work. 
because availability is a key, you know, that is a key attribute for low-wage work. And, you know, I think a lot of retailers are actually on fairly thin profit margins. Mm -hmm. And so they know that their human resources are it's the only thing they can have flexibility over. So that's how we got to this, you know, um, day-to-day sort of scheduling uh, systems that lead them to increase hours and decrease hours. So we saw this among all the families. And that actually, the overall, the picture of work was something I was surprised about. I sort of, when we saw the original numbers, we, we were sort of thinking about families totally detached from the labor market. And when we got to know families, it was very much more families who were working. And then you know, in the case of Travis and Jessica Compton, he had a job at a fast food restaurant. You know, they hit the end of the um, of the holiday season, and his hours got reduced to like five hours or zero hours. Um, he still had a job, but he had no right. hours. And so, what does that mean? You know, and and our our systems aren't really well equipped to deal with that. I will say, since the book came out, uh, and this isn't necessarily because of the book, although I I hope it helped a little. You you are seeing a lot of retailers who are starting to say, let's have another look at this. Um, my my colleague Susan Lambert at the University of Chicago uh, just did a, I think a really important study with the Gap uh, that implemented some more stabilizing scheduling practices and felt like it really improved productivity for them and that it had a positive impact on that's good to performance. Hear. Yeah. I think that's one of the most detrimental things. I mean, that I sort of hear about yeah, anecdotally absolutely. is that reserving of time for employers, for yep. low wage workers. And then the notion that they can be sent home, they, they show up, there's exactly. low foot traffic that day, yep. someone's sent home. And that, um, as, as you and I know, as parents, it wrecks the whole childcare right. schedule and right. the, whole, the whole notion Ripples of through your family. living yeah. your life. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the even darker side of that is um, is wage theft and labor law violations mm-hmm. uh, that we saw a lot of, where we would see uh, folks who uh, were, in some cases, you know, usually the problem is not getting enough hours, but sometimes in the booms, working more than forty hours, not being paid overtime right. is pretty common. Uh, being paid below minimum wage is not uncommon if the data are correct, and you know, we would see people who would be asked to clean a hotel room before they clocked in mm-hmm. or help clean up the big box retail space after they clocked out. So these were pretty common experiences. And and folks at the very bottom, they don't have a lot of recourse. You know, they no. they can try to try to um you know report it, but the the, the best chance is it's just gonna cause them to lose their job and, and not have any negative impact on the employer. I wonder, since we're on this subject, if you could talk a little bit more about the example in your book about the woman who was doing a cleaning job, but it impacted yeah, her health. Right. So this is Jennifer Hernandez. Jennifer. So uh, we can pick up the story at when Bridget and I were hanging out with her and oh, her yes. kids. Uh, and she uh, was actually about to be asked to leave the family homeless shelter she was in because in most of these uh, shelters, you can stay like three or four months. But then if you don't get a job, you're asked to move on. If you do get a job, you in this case, she would be rewarded with a one-year housing subsidy meant to help her move towards self-sufficiency. So she was, I think, within days of being asked to leave, and she had basically gone through all of the family shelters in Chicago. She is one of the most resourceful people I've ever met. And in fact, when we were walking to the park, you could always see her sort of looking on the ground for 
you know, and on the billboards of flyers for special services, or uh, she loved taking her kids to Shakespeare in the Park, which is mm -hmm. a, um, a park um, Free you know, series. Yeah, thing. exactly, mm -hmm. in Chicago. Uh, so finally, she found this job at um, uh, this, uh, this cleaning service. It was a, a mom-and-pop cleaning service on the south side of Chicago, and she really loved the job. So Jennifer spoke very eloquently about how when she was in a job and she had the rhythm of work, uh, she felt like her her mental health challenges were most at bay, right? Mm -hmm. She liked the feelings of contributing uh, that it provided. And in the case of cleaning jobs, she liked uh, when she was going in and doing corporate apartment rentals, um, office spaces. She liked sort of going in and it's dirty when you get there. And when you leave, it's clean, right? You can see a visible sign Tangible, of making good a feeling. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I would like more of that in my work. Um, yes. So then, um, but as the as the season changed to winter, something happened in the sort of portfolio of the cleaning company where they were doing less and less of these like corporate apartment rentals and office spaces and more and more of cleaning foreclosed homes. So. Mm -hmm. Chicago, like a lot of places, especially the South Side, was just um, really hit hard by the foreclosure crisis mm -hmm. um, due to a lot of predatory lending um, that was going on and uh, um, subprime loans and all of that. So uh, the banks sort of uh, outsourced to a company that does the property management. And then that company maybe outsources to a cleaning company. And two or three sort of lines down is Chicago, you know, custodial services where Jennifer works. And she uh, and her team was supposed to go into these foreclosed homes, so homes without any power, without any heat. So she would go to Salvation Army and buy, you know, new jackets pretty regularly. Um, and they were supposed to make it clean and get it ready for, for sale. And they never knew what to expect when they went in. Sometimes there'd be squatters. As they're mm -hmm. opening the door, they're wondering, did this become a drug house? Sometimes wildlife. Things would often have been, um, scrappers would often have come on and sort of pulled out anything of value. Right. That's actually a survival strategy that we saw a little bit. You know, you can go in and pull out copper pipes um, or lots of stuff that people throw away has value at, at, at um, scrap metal yards. And the biggest logistical challenge was water. So, of course, none of these places had water, so they have to bring it with them in these sort of pink tubs. And, you know, they're cleaning along. Her job became much more difficult <laughs> over. I mean, it was a difficult job to start yeah, with. And right. a low-paid job. Exactly. Low job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she has these tubs. And you imagine, what, like half an hour, 45 minutes of using that water, it's completely pitch black. So they'd have to dump it. And then they go up to the, the nearest neighbor that maybe has an outdoor spigot or up to the nearest gas station mm -hmm. to refill the water because there's none in the homes and trudge it all the way back in the Chicago winter. So in her case, she had asthma, being in these sort of, you know, um, dusty houses that had been, um, you know, empty for a long time. She found uh, triggered some asthma attacks. She would get sick. Her kids would get sick if she got sick. You know, you mm -hmm. and I know this too, right? It, if her kids got sick, she would get sick. And... Um, she got sort of deemed unreliable by her boss. 
And her boss, by the way, I think is only like one rung up the ladder here because they're not right. getting a lot of money as the subcontractor. But in in this case, she starts to cut Jennifer's hours down. So her hours go from 30 to 20 to 15. And finally, Jennifer makes this decision that it's more logical. She has a couple more months of this housing subsidy, so she knows she can stay in her place. And she knows how long it took to find this job, this job cleaning foreclosed homes on the south side of Chicago for, I think, eight seventy-five, if I remember correctly. eight seventy-five an hour. Yes. Yeah. So she makes the decision to quit the job so that she can get healthy and start looking for another job because she just wonders how long is it going to take to find the next one. And... She thought she needed to devote, you know, her time full time to, to looking. To that. Yeah. We were speaking to Luke Schaefer, who is author of $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. This is a Living Writers show. Um, should we do a little break? Yeah. Let's do good. a little break and let's hear India Ari with There's Hope. And we'll be back with Luke Schaefer in a moment. Was a little too complicated. See, zero didn't satisfy me. A million didn't make me happy. That's when I learned the lesson that it's all about your perceptions. Hey, are you a papa or a superstar? So you act, so you feel, so you are. It ain't about the size of your car, it's about the size of the faith in your heart. There's hope, it doesn't cost a thing to smile. Don't have to pay to laugh. You better thank God for that. And we're back with the Living Writer Show on WCBN. I'm Amanda Yuli, your summer host, and we're talking to Luke Schaefer, who is author of Two Dollars a Day. Um, we, we referenced earlier in the show, and I wanted to have you expand on the idea about where the United States fits into the global situation on on poverty um, and how we compare. Yeah, um, I was. Surprised to learn in our conversation about um, the United States exporting more plasma uh, yeah, <laughs> than, yeah. than we need, yeah. um, which is kind of a symptom of that. But yeah. Can you tell me more? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is this is one of the questions that we hope to raise with this book. And, of course, the, the title is provocative in one way, that $2, $2 a day is one of the global measures of, of poverty uh, globally. Global measures of poverty globally, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, we we just wanted to start a conversation about this very question: Where do we fit in the international context? And in some ways, there are resources in the United States that there just aren't in the, the world's poorest countries. Uh, food stamps, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's uh, you know private charity. Especially in a place like Chicago, one of the interesting things we saw about private charity is that there seemed to be more in the wealthier places. So Chicago mm-hmm. had a, a stronger social safety net and charitable social safety net environment. Cleveland a little less so. Johnson City a little less so. And then in the Mississippi Delta, it was non-existent, you know, mm-hmm. one of our poorest places. But to me, when we started to look across a series of indicators, when you start to look at things like the life expectancy of poor Americans and infant mortality, uh, 
we have some of the highest, you know, the rates that we have, especially among our the disadvantaged Americans, really compare to some of the world's poorest countries, uh, and and are certainly off the charts, you know, in a different level than Western industrialized countries. Um, and then things like incarceration. So when I think about uh, extreme poverty in a global sense, I think of the risk of losing your freedom, the risk of violence, and we live in a very violent uh, place. Uh, and uh, we've actually seen violence decline over the last few decades, but still, you know, when you think of the experience of growing up in very, you know, concentrated poor communities, there's a lot of exposure to to violence. Uh, and we incarcerate, you know, a greater share of our population, mostly our low-income Americans, you know, to an extent that I think no other country ever has in the, the history of the world. So to us, when you look at, you know, across, when you look across the band, I think uh, poverty in America looks uh, extremely deep and uh, you know, is perhaps not comparable to the very poorest countries in the world, but, um, you know, pretty significant. And, and it's been interesting uh, to see this conversation play out. Some of the criticism that we've gotten uh, has been that, um, you know, it's just this is sort of the perennial debate in the United States is how bad is poverty. There's a lot of mm -hmm. people who say, you know, the poor are rich by international standards in this country because they have more stuff. Um, but uh, a, a really, I think, um, insightful report just came out by um, – the special Rappaport on extreme poverty uh, from the United Nations, uh, and I think it was in part, um, in part, that uh, that he came to the United States. I think our book was partly influential, and and uh, you know he's uh, he's a guy who who looks at poverty globally, and and the report you know has a lot of just really powerful lines about. Poor Americans living shorter and sicker lives and mm -hmm. being more risk of losing their freedom um, than um, many other places in the world. So this is, you know, we have significant challenges in this in this country. And, um, you know, one of the biggest differences that I will say in terms of families, families with children between us and most of our industrialized countries is that we took very much an approach of carving out programs for poor families, right? So, you know, cash assistance is a piece of that. And we talk about how that has become, you know, a, a small vestige of its former self and mm -hmm. food stamps now snap. These are programs for poor families. In, in other Western industrialized countries, they have some of that, but the safety net is much more universal. So, in other uh, words, not just for families with children. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, and not just for poor families, right? So, ah. uh, they uh, more so rely on programs that serve everyone and have the effect of reducing poverty. So, a great example of that That's is it. the child allowance. So, in Canada, you uh, for every child you have, the 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 government and the society has said, you know what, raising children is important and it's expensive, mm -hmm. and we are going to provide some support to help do that. And everybody gets the same amount. I think it might be up to five or six thousand dollars a kid a year. Now, if we did that, we would eradicate the kind of poverty that we're talking about in this book, and reduce 
you know, poverty in like every way that it's measured without it being a program about poverty. It would the, be for everyone. It would be for everyone, but mm-hmm. it would be it would have a huge anti-poverty effect without having sort of the stigmatizing effect that you were alluding to right. earlier. I often, you know, when I'm on the road, I'll ask folks, what is the most successful anti-poverty program we've ever had? And the answer, in my mind, is Social Security. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not a program that targets poverty. It's a universal program, but we get... 90, 98 or 99% of Americans in it. And the elderly poverty rate, you can just watch as Social Security benefits start to roll in. And over time, when we increase benefits, you see poverty just plummet during that period. And seniors have some of the lowest poverty rates. And that also tracks with their material hardship rates that they're, you know, certainly there's a lot of seniors out there who um, struggle with out-of-pocket medical expenses, but they... To a greater extent than other groups, they have sort of a, a foundational baseline. baseline. Uh, yeah. And you can see it in all of the indicators. Yeah. You talk in the book a bit about um, the way poverty is hidden in some mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it is not only hidden, but in my mind, it's also concentrated. So there are, there are people that live their lives without knowing or encountering poverty because of how uh, separate yeah. Some some uh, yeah. poor families, so how separately they live yeah. uh, from others. Can you talk about about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think uh, a lot of people want to. When you say the word poverty, one of the first images that comes to people's mind is often people on the street asking for money, mm-hmm. and that is a that is a very particular population of folks. And there's research about. Um, What's going on with them? We know there's a high concentration of folks who have served in the military uh, among that population, a lot of disabilities and, you know, just a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. But in the case of most families, you don't want to be out there. You're not putting your out there saying I'm vulnerable. You know, I'm poor, especially if you're a single mom. So uh, and they're often working. Yeah, as well. Exactly. <laughs> so they don't have time to be. Exactly. Honest, right. Yeah. Being being hidden is a survival strategy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as we said earlier, you have um, uh, a mom or a parent who's working at, at Walmart. Uh, and even when they hit these hard times, they're going to sort of go out of their way to to remain hidden. The second thing you alluded to is that, you know, geographically, we've just become much more stratified than we were. Yes. I think Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor is a great example of that. Agree. Right? You know, totally uh, agree. So Ann Arbor is always maybe a little bit a, a bit more affluent, but my family is actually many generations um, Ypsilanti residents, and we had a hardware store on Michigan Avenue. And you know, one of the things my mom told me about was that uh, my my grandpa was like the check casher for welfare checks uh, mm-hmm. in the like at 1960s the at the store. Mm-hmm. And he knew, you know, which when, you know, he knew the sons when they came in, he could trust them and check cash the, yeah. the mom's check. And he knew the ones that he said, you know, go back and your mom yeah. needs to come in to get the money, you know. Yeah. So there was this connection. And I don't have that connection anymore as a, as a, as a professor and at yeah. U of M. Um, and in Hit's case, when my mom told me that story, I thought, oh, isn't that great? You know, noblesse oblige of sorts. But then she went on to say, you know, there are some times when the hardware store, the only money coming in 
was from folks who had welfare checks who had maybe bought a washer at some point and was making regular payments. Mm-hmm. So it was a sta- that was a stabilizing force. So there was, I think, just a more connected economic ecosystem than there is today. And so many Americans who are not living in poverty don't want to think about it, right? <laughs> and it's yeah, just kind right. of this separate... Yeah, it's not, you know, thinking about these things, thinking about, you know, Caitlin's experience... Uh, down south and family sort of going from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. Uh, it's not, it, it can be tough. Uh, but actually, you know, I put on India's song, There's Hope, or ask you to play it. Yes. In part because um, I was, that was a great thing about getting to know the families who I met through this book is that despite everything that they experienced, and you can read about a, a lot of it, they still did have hope. And you know, we would actually ask like every family, if we came back in a year and you were doing well, things were going well, what would it look like? And they would say, I mean, strikingly to a person, I would be in a job that had full-time hours and, you know, making $12 an hour. Like it would, right. the, the range was like 11 to $13 an hour. One guy said $15 an hour, Travis yeah. Compton. He wanted like 2000 in the bank too, you know, mm-hmm. in a place of in a place of our own. And to me, that really, I think, symbolized like the American dream for a lot of the families that we met. That was what, Mm -hmm. these were modest dreams by, I think, any standard, but they, and I think a lot of folks thought they were gonna make it, that 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 could happen. So they they remained hopeful and optimistic uh, in a way that sort of inspires me uh, at least to, very to keep on doing the, the work that, yeah. that I do and I think can inspire all of us to try to engage with some of these issues. When you were talking about the the sort of amount of money that would feel comfortable for people, mm-hmm. um, I wrote down when I was writing the book just what a vanishingly small amount of money $2 a day is compared yeah. to what we call poverty in this yeah. country, right? I think it was... Sixteen fifty a day a person yep. is poor, and then yep. half of that is is very poor. He is yeah, deeply poor. Deeply yeah. poor. Yeah. But but we're not we're talking about like a quarter of that, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how families actually survive on so little. You know, what yeah. are they? What are they doing? How are they living? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the the experiences we said, like the most common way that a family entered into one of these spells was to uh, be in a job, right? So then you're you're probably, you know, and this is sort of the dynamics of being among the working poor, right? But when families are working, they're often sort of very much writing that line, right? There's not, there's not any flexibility in that budget. So they experience a crisis, you know, in Ray McCormick's case in Cleveland, she worked at Walmart, she loved the job. And uh, she had this great sort of technique of, she was a cashier at Walmart, and she had this great technique to read the barcodes of the most popular produce items into a recording device on her phone, and then she would play it overnight. And uh, she said, when I woke up in the morning, you know, she played on repeat, and she said, when I woke up in the morning, my subconscious had done the work, and she could key those in from memory. But she gets into her car uh, that she shared with her uncle George and the gas lights on. And she'd given all of her extra money already for gas to be able to use the car to get back and forth to work. And she goes in and they have this huge fight. And she says, you know, I already gave my money for the gas. I'm supposed to be able to use it to get to work. 
And her uncle says, well, we had these errands to run. Like somehow he ends up blaming it on her. She calls her um, uh, supervisor, her manager at Walmart and says, can you float me alone? Can somebody come pick me up? And he says, if you can't get in today, don't bother coming in again. Which those types of experiences we heard from time and time again, right? So then she enters into the spell when there's no cash money coming in. So, you know, we, we saw all sorts of things. So plasma was one of them, right? That's a way that, like, if you need a little extra money, um, you know, we, in Cleveland especially, we went to the plasma center and you can see there's almost always a bus stop in front mm -hmm. and the bus stops and everybody gets off and you can very much tell why they're going in. Uh, and in the plasma center is right by the public benefits office. So, you know, people go from one to the next. It's sort of, I think of it as like a safety net, right? To get that little yeah. bit of extra cash to boost you up a little bit more. We mm -hmm. saw a lot of families who would sell their food stamps. Mm -hmm. So pretty uh, vibrant market at the bottom where families, you know, if that's the only sort of assistance coming in, uh, the exchange rate that we saw was about 50 cents on the dollar. So, mm -hmm. you know, one way that this happens is you find a, a merchant that does this and you swipe through $100 of fake groceries and you get back $50 in cash, right? So there's no groceries exchanged. You get the, the store keeps 50 bucks. 50 bucks. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a tough, yeah. that's, a, that's a big penalty and I think speaks to the importance of the flexibility of cash to yeah. families. And also, yeah. I'll just say that um, on most food stamps applications at the very bottom, it says if you're caught trafficking, so to doing this sort of thing, you could face up to 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine, uh, which which means it's actually... That's an astonishing amount of money for <laughs> actually, someone who's struggling by, to... By the themselves. letter of the law, you should you face less jail time for robbing a bank. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever gotten 20 years, but that's you know that's what we do to people when, when we make them apply for these benefits. We do. So, so we saw scrapping, of course, families, mm -hmm. but that's kind of hard because you need some resources. Uh, and then, of course, like the extreme... Um, version is, is selling sex or sexual favors. And we found that to be all too, all too common, especially common. among the women, yeah. of course. Um, I want to actually talk about women and how, mm -hmm. um, how to my reading of this book, I really saw so many feminist issues in the book. Uh, single parenthood is a huge part yep. of poverty, of course. Sure. And of course, women are the are more commonly single parents. Um, did you find that in your research? And is, can you speak to that a little bit? About yeah, women in poverty. We uh, you definitely see single moms as the the predominant group facing circumstances like this. Uh -huh. uh, I think in the book we also, and when we looked at the data, it suggested that's the that's the biggest core, and they're very much overrepresented. But that's not the only family type, that uh, mm -hmm. there were more married families in this group than mm -hmm. you might have thought. And so we met people like Paul Heckwalder in Cleveland. In his case, they had had a, a family pizza business. He'd actually had like three. Um, he was a franchisee of three little pizza shops. And when the economy tanked, he lost all of them. And the problem, I think, when you have a business that um, is a family business, everyone works there, is that Everyone loses their job. At you know, the there's nobody time. to yeah. bail bail you out. Um, and then Travis and Jessica Compton are another example. 
But I mean, clearly, um, the you have um, single moms uh, with kids, uh, you know, face a certain set of labor market challenges, right? And we know a lot about um, uh, you know the pay gap. Uh, mm -hmm. You and you face, I think, a certain vulnerability uh, in particular, and and. And maybe even you know a higher risk of of different types of exploitation. Sure, and childcare be, being a factor. Childcare is a big one. Yeah, seeking work you know. and other things. Yeah, and uh, you know we had a couple of the guys um, who were parents who uh, um, were you know I think incarcerated. Uh, some folks who you know they just split up a long time ago. Um, so you know one of the interesting things that may be controversial sort of things that I've been looking at is uh, um, there's a lot of work coming out that says access to choice when it comes to family planning mm -hmm. is a critical piece here. So we, we've had sort of an increase in um, the accessibility of long-acting reversible contraception. And a number of my colleagues, um, Martha Bailey at the U of M as an example, are showing that by uh, providing more uh, you no know, tools where women especially ha have choice, right, of the types of family planning and also can have more control over the timing of childbirth, right, even if you don't reduce the number of kids, but, uh, you know, change the timing of birth uh, over time, those can have huge anti-poverty effects. Sure, uh, when women are permitted to receive their education first or pursue exactly, other goals before right. their children come. Get established in the labor market. And, and uh, right, work experience. Yeah, but yeah. you know these sort of policies, you know, I think uh, there's a great uh, group called Upstream, I think, that says, you know, the goal should be that any woman can get any contraception, uh, you know, form on any day, right? So yeah. we want to increase the choice and we want to increase access that can happen quickly because, you know, especially with a lot of our families, you lose them because there's so much instability and volatility over time if they have to come back, you know, after a week or, or something to sort of finish something, you know. You're bringing up one more great point. We're we're getting so close on time. I, know. I feel I like feel, we just started. <laughs> me too. I have so many more questions. Um, but I wanted you to speak before we have to end about um, time and sort of the cost um, mm. that people pay in time. Things like that very complex Walmart application online. Yeah, things right, like right. taking public transportation that may not be reliable and um, all the ways that uh, time is a currency in which... Uh, Poor people sometimes lose, yeah, lose right, out. Right. I think at some point in the book we write about how the way that um, vulnerable families pay for services is often with their time, and right. and we're pretty, you know, as a group, we're pretty disrespectful of that. We don't we don't recognize that. We sort of say, as a society, like if you need help, you can just wait for it until, yeah. you know, until you're seen. You know, we had this great example with Madonna, where you know here she was. Madonna and Brianna, they were, uh, you know, this really dynamic mother and daughter. Brianna, I think, was about 14 at the time. And they were going through a succession of family homeless shelters after she had lost her job and been evicted from her apartment in Chicago. And uh, we convinced her to go to the welfare office because, um, you know, she was on 
food stamps, although her food stamps had been sporadic, had been cut off a couple times. So there were times when she had nothing coming in at all. But we convinced her to go down and try to get cash welfare. And Kathy was with her, and they got into line, and uh, she was just convinced they don't give this out anymore. I've had so many friends have been turned away. And she didn't want to go at all, and we she got into line before it opened up. And at some point, somebody came out and said, if you don't have a ticket already, we're not going to be able to see you today. Mm-hmm. So they turned her away. And so the challenge is, like, when you are a parent like that, you have a finite amount of time. Are you going to go back? You know, we often mm-hmm. uh, sort of, when we turn people away like that, it it means it's less, it's not reliable, right? And when we provide services that are of questionable value, right? So I think there's a lot of like job job search and job help, you know, a lot of organizations, many wonderful organizations, but others that say, oh, come in, we'll help you with your resume or something. I'll help you find jobs online. And, and people, they need real help. And they, you know, all too often, I think, go in and find, you know, time-intensive services that aren't worth it, that don't actually help them. And so they turn away and they have to, they're going to go search out other ways to do it, like plasma or, you know, some of the other things we talked about. I wonder if, as our kind of closing note, you could talk about uh, what you see either in public policy or in other ways is working to to address poverty. You know, what are you have three minutes? Yeah, can yeah, you sure. can you please solve sure. this massive problem? But um, yeah, can you can you speak about that? Either what people yeah. can do, our listeners who are hearing what you're saying today and who have read or will read your book, or yeah. um, or others. Yeah. Well, as a person, I would encourage people to. To get engaged, there's lots of ways to do it. You can do it by deciding to get involved in public policy discussions. Some of that happens at the federal level, but a surprising amount happens at the state and local level. You know, uh, we have been doing a bunch of work around uh, driver responsibility fees in the state of Michigan, which is a state law that people for very low fines got their licenses revoked and it was very expensive. And they've just repealed that. And so now a lot of work has to happen to get people get people through the process to get their licenses back. So that's one way you can do it. But, you know, volunteering and being at a a, a family shelter or a, a food bank, I think that's incredible work, too. In any of this, from my own experience, uh, experience, I would just encourage people to get out from behind the, you know, the food table and mm-hmm. you're serving something. Get out from behind the food table and sit down and have a conversation have a conversation as people and not be afraid to share something about yourself. When I think about the federal landscape, I think there's a lot more conversation about the importance of cash aid. I don't know what form that should take. Uh, we had a Coursera course here at U of M to talk about basic income strategies, UBI and negative income tax, and people can check that out. It's a series of short online interviews with experts around the country. And people can actually check that yeah, out. Yeah, they can and... check it out. Coursera, the University yep. of Michigan Basic Income Strategies. We, um, as part of a paper that we had, um, Senators Brown and uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado introduced the American Family Act, which would introduce a, a child allowance in the United States. I think that would go a long way. And I think a place where there's bipartisan support is around work is around increasing access to work supports. 
So one model that we're seeing that I think has a lot of promise is success coaches. So if you compare a program that maybe helps with a wage subsidy, you know, convinces a an employer to take a chance on someone, uh, but pair that with someone who a person like Ray McCormick can call when she can't get to work, who isn't there to make her feel bad about her life. There's lots of other options for that, that but can provide support and help her solve problems. Uh, I think there's a lot of promise to that, uh, both at an organizational level and a government level. Luke Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us on Living Writers today. You're the author of $2 a Day, uh, Living on Almost Nothing in America, and this is a Living Writers show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you You be like heaven to touch heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much Hold you so much And long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you Caught in the way that I stand The way that I stand There's nothing else to compare The sight of you leaves me weak there are no words that to speak, words that to but speak. if you feel like I feel, please let me know that it's real. You're just too good to be true, can't take my eyes off you. And now a chance to shake your tambourine. It's time to get sweaty with WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Hope you're ready to move, pump it, and dance for the next 30 minutes during this